0: uh, As I mentioned, we got through this major change and shift uh, in the book of Acts. Um, God is making it more clear that salvation is not just for the Jews. The Messiah did not come just for the Jews, but he came for all people, all people, even those outside, people who are nothing like the Jews. And this has major ramifications for the Jews. They've got to make adjustments They have to now go into territory and into circumstances that severely challenge their conscience. And they don't like this. Their preferences, their view of what what is right and wrong is now being challenged by the Lord because of what he is showing them here. So now the Jews, they're going to have to learn how to coexist alongside, not just live in the same city, but in the same church with Gentiles. Gentiles. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. You think the political divide within the church is a big deal? That's, this is what we deal with here, Republican, Democrat. That is nothing compared to what Jews and Gentiles dealt with. And they had to coexist in the same church. This is a big deal. Major adjustments that the Jews had to make. The Gentiles are coming in like, cool, we're welcome now. And the Jews are like, oh, right? They don't like this. So what should they do? That God is making this more clear. We've seen so far that at first, Peter pushed back a little bit on the Lord. When, when, he, when God said to Peter, rise, kill and eat, kill and eat these, these unclean animals, and what did he say? He goes, no, Lord, no. I have never done that in my life. I've never done that. So he's saying at first no to the Lord, but then he realized you know what, maybe I shouldn't get in the way of the Lord. And he said that very thing. Who am I to get in the way of the Lord? And then the same thing happened to the Jews when, when Peter went to this other group of Jews. And they said, Hey, we heard that you were hanging out with Gentiles. What's that all about? And he shared with them what the Lord showed him. And then they thankfully said, Whoa, this is crazy. So God is letting even outsiders be saved? So they initially pushed back, but then the Lord changed their hearts. And today, we deal with the same problems. We have our views, we have our belief of what's right and wrong, what we think as Christians is acceptable, unacceptable, appropriate, inappropriate, and it is complicated. It is complicated. So we're gonna be looking at the conscience based on Acts 10 that we've been in, but also today we're gonna be looking at 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, also Romans 14. The scripture says a lot about this topic. So we're not just looking at this one tiny little story and then blowing this big thing up into four sermons. There's a lot of scripture that talks about this. We're gonna be going through all these different ones over four weeks. Because for every unique person, there is a unique conscience. Though we have one Bible, we have varied consciences. Not varied truths. Don't hear me say that. This is where it gets complicated. There's only one truth but we have varied consciences. That's what makes it complicated. That's what makes us rub each other the wrong way because everyone in this room believes that their conscience is fully, totally aligned with God's word, right? Like you believe that. You should believe that. If you don't believe that, you're doing something wrong. You should believe that, you know, I'm doing it right, but I'm gonna tell you, you're not doing it right in every way. I'm not doing it right in every way. So you should be convinced that you are, but you also should know that you're not. Isn't that weird? It's weird, but that's the truth. So your conscience is like, it's like your sense of touch, right? You touch hot, you recoil, right? You pull back, ooh, that's hot, right? Your conscience, when it's active, when you're, you're about to do something wrong, your conscience tells you to think twice. That's like touch, like, ooh, I shouldn't do that. There's some things that your conscience sends up this red flag, but for some reason, your good friend or your spouse, other people in your community, they, they don't have the same reaction, they touch that stove and go, oh, that's not hot. What are you talking about? They, they don't have that same reaction that you do. Maybe, maybe you don't mind movies, for instance, with maybe some violence or, or scary subject matter. Uh, maybe your wife doesn't like watching those. And I'm not saying just like from taste, like oh, I just don't like scary movies. She might actually think that they're wrong. It's sinful to watch those. So who's right? Who's right? In, in one sense, actually, you both might be Right? And again, I'm only saying there's one truth, but we're gonna get into why this is important for us to recognize that in, in a sense you might both be right. Another example, maybe say chick-flicks, right? Maybe your wife likes to walk watch chick-flicks. You don't like to, and not just because of a tasting, but you think, you know, your manhood is being seriously compromised. And that's sinful. So, so who's right in this instance? In this instance, men, you're totally right. It is sinful to watch chick flicks if you're a guy. So. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that we have different viewpoints of different things and we might not all agree. So this week we're going to be looking at what is the conscience, what's its role. Next week we're going to look at what a weak conscience is according to the word of God versus a strong conscience and also a seared conscience. Week three we're going to look at how to adjust our conscience, how do we, how do we make adjustments. Okay, I know what it is. I can see that I have maybe a weak conscience or a strong conscience, but how do I make good biblical adjustments? And the fourth week is going to be looking at how to live among others who differ in our opinions and our conscience. So I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be going through um, eight verses uh, as we begin. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to these things. Uh, We're not left here guessing uh, or just making up stuff. Um, but your word is challenging. Uh, there's things uh, even in this very topic that uh, I, I know I'm, I'm being challenged in, and, um, and I know many times over the years I've been challenged by so many of these particular verses um, because uh, I'm convinced that I'm living my life biblically, uh, but I also know that I have blind spots. I have areas that need adjustment. Um, I might not be able to see them right now, or maybe I get a hunch that maybe I don't know. But but when I look at these scriptures, they they kind of they awaken me and excite me to um, to seek you out, to seek out truth, to have my mind and my heart adjusted. Uh, I want to walk according to your word. I I want, as we sang, I want to arise each day by Your strength, not by mine; by Your wisdom, not by mine. I want You to guide me. I want Your word to speak to me. I want Your strength to uphold me. I want You to be in front of me, behind me, to my left, to my right, to above, below. I want I want You to be in the mind and eyes and ears of everyone who thinks and speaks of me. But I can't do that if, if my conscience isn't aligned with your word. And so help me, help us all to take this challenge seriously to say, Lord, shape us, shape us. You've promised, Lord, that you're gonna finish the good work that you began in us. And so I hope that these next four weeks give us uh, scriptural truths and insights on, on how that can be and, and what areas need to be shaped. Help us, uh, as uh, brothers and sisters, to have iron sharpening iron. That in our groups, these next four weeks, we would have really good discussions. Loving, gracious, patient discussions. Open discussions. We need your help, Lord. We need your help. And we thank you that your word gives us so much help. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, the first eight verses. You should open your Bibles with me, not just look behind me, because you're going to want to circle some words here. So this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a Greek town, so a lot of Gentiles were coming into this church, a lot of pagan activity that was at the heart of this city. And so there's a lot of intermixing here and a lot of questions going on and struggles among Jews and Gentiles. So, Paul says, now, concerning food offered to idols. So let's talk about something, Paul says. You got this issue you've brought up to me, that there's food that's been offered up to idols, false gods, as a sacrifice. And now the Jews are going, should we eat this food? We don't know. He goes, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That'll be an important verse as we go through this that we'll have to come back to you. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that has to be a cornerstone for us. Love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. And we're gonna come back to all that. Therefore, as for the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. So Paul's saying, look, there's no such thing as idols. Like, we use those words, but they're not real entities that exist. Right? There's not a God of the sun." Right? There's, there's none of that stuff. Okay, so we know that truly an idol has no real existence and that there's no God except for one. There's only one God out there, truly. For although there may be so-called gods, and we use that phrase loosely, you know, you're worshiping false gods, false idols. We use that, and that's good that we use that, but they're only so-called gods. They're not true gods. So There's so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, Yet for us, there is only one God, capital G, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. There is only one God and only one Lord. However, however, so now we're gonna flip over to someone who has a different conscience. Not everyone, not all people possess that knowledge. Not every Christian understands that but some, because of their former association with idols, so maybe there's a believer here who worshiped the God of the sun. They're a Gentile, they worship the God of the sun, and now they're coming into fellowship, and they're going, ooh, I can't eat that meat because I used to be a sun worshiper, and that meat used to, is, it was offered to, so I can't do that. So this person doesn't quite understand yet that there's really only one God. So they're going, I can't, I can't do that. Right? They're, they're, they're weak, there's a weakness there. It's okay, it's sort of... Uh, uh, youthful or new in their faith, it's okay that that's the case, but they're just not there yet. So not everyone possesses this knowledge. This is why we go back to knowledge, just knowledge alone. If you're like, oh no, we can eat this meat, that knowledge can puff up, but love is what builds up. So you have to choose love in this instance and not just go, hey dude, just fine, just eat the meat. No, no, in love, you decide, I'm gonna build them up. I have the knowledge that there's only one God, but I'm not gonna put that on them. I'm gonna love them. I'm gonna be patient with them. So, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, they eat food as really actually offered up to an idol. They really think that happened. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So, if this person eats this meat that's been offered up to an idol that they used to worship, they, their conscience, they violate their conscience, and now they're defiled. In their mind, they feel sick, they feel gross, they feel dirty. They didn't actually truly do anything wrong. It's just meat. But because of their association previously with idols, they're going, I can't do that. It bothers them. So they've defiled themselves because their conscience is weak. And Paul says, food isn't going to commend us to God. That's not what makes you close to God. Oh, I can eat meat offered to idols. Look, I'm strong. That, that doesn't do anything. And we're no worse off if we don't eat. So if you abstain from eating the meat, it's not like you're better or worse. Food isn't what, or or indulging in this meat or not is not what makes you close to the Lord. That's not what it does. Only Christ brings you close to the Lord. That's it. So whether you eat or don't, that does nothing for you as far as you're standing before the Lord. So, a lot there to unpack. So in Corinth, some of these Christians were gladly eating food they knew was being offered up to an idol. Maybe the butcher was a pagan, or the cow that was slaughtered was... Offered up beforehand, sometimes they would offer part of the cow to a pagan god, then they'd sell the rest in the marketplace. And some of these Christians didn't think it was morally right to eat food offered to an idol. But Paul's saying to the Corinthians, yes, it's true that some things are offered to idols, but look again at verse 4. We know that an idol doesn't actually really exist, and there's only one God. There's so-called gods, but for us there's only one God. So he's saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just enjoy that smoky tri-tip. Enjoy it. Give God thanks for it. But he also says, so he says, yes, you can enjoy it. Don't worry about it. There's only one God. Give him thanks. But he also says, but not all Christians understand that. Because of their former association with those idols, because of their past, they don't quite understand. It's real to them that this this beef was offered up to an idol. This might be traumatic for them to somehow be forced or peer pressured into eating this meat, even though Paul's saying, look, it doesn't do you any good or bad to eat the meat. That's not what commends you before God. But to them, because of their weak conscience and their past, to them, it defiles them because of their, the youthfulness of their faith, the weakness of their faith. And I don't mean weakness really in a negative way. I just mean a reality like, you know, a baby is weaker than a grown man. I'm not saying it negatively, right? So if you feel like you have a weak conscience, we're not talking down about that. I'm just saying the reality of a young, weak faith that has not yet matured into the knowledge that, you know, there's only one God. And, And I know you know there's only one God. But he's trying to walk them through why people have differing views. So the person who believes it's wrong to eat that meat Even if that idol doesn't actually exist, even if eating or not eating doesn't make you better off or worse off, that person, though, they should not eat that meat. They should not do that. And we're gonna talk about why. But Paul's addressing two types of Christians because Christians have generally two different types of consciences. Actually, there's more than that, but we're gonna say two for today. Now, in your notes, you can follow along with me here. Defining the conscience conscience is mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. This isn't just based off of Acts 10. There's a lot that the New Testament alone has to speak about the conscience. The conscience is what you believe is right or wrong at any given time, at any given time. Now, it's important to note that it's only what you believe is right or wrong, not necessarily what's actually right or wrong. Okay, your conscience is what you believe is right or wrong. It's also important to note that it's what you believe at any given time in your life. How many of you your consciousness changed over the last five, 10 years? Mine has, for sure. So my conscience is what I believe is right or wrong right now. So two things about that, what you believe is right or wrong may not be what is actually right or wrong. You might be wrong about that. And your conscience can change, it should change. If you're gonna keep maturing in Christ, it should change. We're going to look at more of that next week. But for now, we're going to start with just the fact that the conscience is what you believe is right or wrong. So in your notes, again, a few basics. Number one, the bullet points, your conscience is yours and no one else's. It's yours and it's no one else's. You can't impose your conscience on someone else. You should not do that. Second bullet point, no two consciences are alike. There are none, right? My wife and I have different consciences. Good friends of mine, we have different consciences. Me and Tyler, we have different consciences. Right, your closest friends, different consciences. That's not a bad thing, that's just reality. Okay, uh, I wanna show this graphic to kinda help us through this a little bit. Got a couple triangles here. We have our friend Ann and our friend Bill, and we're looking at their two consciences here, okay? so. Anne and Bill agree that some topic, C, D, E, and F, are sin. You know, we agree on this, whatever it is, murder, stealing, whatever. Okay, those are the kind of obvious. Anne also thinks topic A and B is sin, but Bill says, nah, it's fine. Maybe it's watching movies with violence or something like that. She thinks it's sin, Bill disagrees. Bill, though, thinks that H through O and G, those are sin, and Anne disagrees. So we kind of get an idea, like maybe, maybe, maybe Bill is maybe a little legalistic or maybe Anne's, you know, kind of crazy. (laughs) We don't really know, right? But we see that they disagree with each other on what is sin. They agree on some things, but they disagree on others. Now we have to understand that when we look at these two and they disagree, you go, "Well, well, who's right? Who's wrong? Your next bullet point in your notes there is that no one's conscience is perfectly aligned with God's will. No one's conscience. Okay? Now the next point is no one's conscience is perfectly aligned with God's will. Amen. Amen. That is not a typo. That is in there twice on purpose. No one I'm gonna say it three times. No one's conscience is perfectly aligned with God's will. Now again, you might think yours you you should believe that yours is. I hope that you believe yours is. That's a good thing if you think that but you have to also know that it's not okay it's not all right so let's look at this this next one we're going to add in god's conscience we'll call it god's will is the green one so now it gets a little interesting so ann and bill agree on c d e and f and yay so does god he's like good job guys you got that whole murder thing right that's wrong. wrong it's wrong it's wrong so they agree Anne believes that A is sin, Bill does not, but God agrees with Anne. Anne thinks that B is sin, Bill disagrees, God disagrees. Alright, so score one for Bill there. Bill thinks H through O and uh, H through O is sin, God disagrees. So now we're finding out that Bill actually is a bit legalistic here. He also thinks that G is sin and God agrees, and Anne got that one wrong. But here's the crazy thing, God says P is sin, and Bill and Ann don't agree with that. So they actually miss one together. We don't know what that is. You know, this is just a made-up thing here, but it's complicated, isn't it? Kind of interesting. And you start adding in more and more triangles of more people, all your friends, your family, and it becomes a huge mess, right? But it's important for us to see this because we have to understand that though we can agree and disagree, we have to know that, Only God has truth and we're gonna hit the mark and miss the mark at any given time, sometimes with other people, sometimes without people. So back in your notes, next point here is you can damage your conscience in two different ways. Number one, you can become insensitive to sin. You can just assume that the thing that you're fine with, oh yeah, no, it's fine to do this or that and you get so cavalier with it, you don't really think about it, you don't really compare it to God's word, you get so insensitive towards it, you just go, like, you've got calloused fingers, so you can touch that, that hot pan on the stove. And that's not good. So you might think to yourself, oh, I've just got a strong conscience. Mm, you might not. Don't call a strong conscience a seared conscience. That's what we're gonna look at next week. But you can become insensitive to sin, and yet we call it, no, I'm just, I've, I've got freedom in Christ. That's a danger. That's a danger. You can believe things are okay that are truly sin. And all of us have areas in our life that we can say that about, all of us, okay? The next thing you can do to damage your conscience, you can become oversensitive, oversensitive. You can believe things are sin, not just, not your preference, but they're actually sin. You call it sin. People shouldn't be doing this. No one should be doing this. You can call things that are sin that actually aren't sin. You touch just a, a warm pan on a stove and go, oh, gosh, that's hot. You're like, no, it's not. It's just like, I just turned it on. Right? But you're oversensitive. You call things are sin, like, like Bill did there, but they're not actually sin. So we can become oversensitive. And all of us have areas in our life where we do this. So you're not going to be in one category or the other. You're not going to be, oh, I'm the strong conscious guy, the weak conscious. You're going to have a mix of both, okay, just like these guys did. And then the last point there in that bullet point, your conscience can also change for the better. We just covered that it can change for the worse, but it can also change for the better. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to look at the next few weeks. So two important principles in the next section in your notes. Number one, obey it. Obey your conscience, Don't go against your conscience. Romans 14, 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So you got that tri-tip right there, but you know that it was offered to an idol, and you're going, oh, I don't know if I should eat this, but you eat it anyway. You've just sinned. Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. It's not a, you know what? There's only one God. I'm going to give God thanks when I eat this tri-tip. There's no faith there. It's this, I don't know if I should. I'm doubting. I think it's sin, but I'm going to do it anyway. Don't do that. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Paul says. So we have to go forward in confidence. Now, chances are, everyone, the folks that I know in this room, at least, I could say, chances are your, your conscience is going to be mostly Right? Right. I mean, Bill and Ann were mostly right. They just had some outliers here, right? Bill had a few more outliers than Ann. But chances are, your your conscience is going to be mostly right, but not always right. However, even if it is only mostly right, if you go against what you believe is right, that is sin. Now, why is disobeying an imperfect conscience, why would we call that sin? If the conscience is imperfect, why would that be sin if we go against it? I'll, I'll give you an example uh, we'll, we'll just use the topic of, of listening to secular music, right? Some things that people kind of disagree or agree on. Why would it be, and let's just say, we're not saying it's like something really crazy, but just some, you know, any, any uh, just mellow secular music, you know. Um, why would it be sin for someone to listen to secular music if the song, you know, wasn't bad or anything like that? It wasn't like these like cuss words and bad content. Why would it be sin for someone? If a person believes something is sin, even if it's not, and they willfully do something that they believe is sin, what matters isn't the action itself, but the intent of the heart. The fact that they chose to go against what they thought was sin. They chose to go against what they felt like God said, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't listen to, even if it's a simple song like Stand By Me or Lean On Me or something really just neutral, But maybe because of a former association, maybe, you know, you used to party in high school and used to listen to those songs, and so now if you listen to that song, it takes you back. So it's sin for you. It's not sinful to listen to that song, but it's sinful for you to go against your conscience when you know that this would be wrong and bad for me. That's what makes it wrong. So uh, another uh, kind of an example, like let's say you go to a friend's house, you've got a $20 bill in your pocket, and the $20 bill falls out, and you didn't actually know that it fell out. And you're hanging out with your friend, and then you see a $20 bill on the floor. You don't think it's yours, because you think, oh, yours is in your pocket. But you go, oh, $20 bill, all right. Take it, put it in your pocket. You didn't just steal, right? You didn't steal. That was your money. But your intent was to steal. Even though you didn't steal. Does that make sense? Right? So Picking up a $20 bill and putting it in your pocket isn't a sin, if it's your $20 bill, but the fact that you didn't know that it was, you sinned because your heart intended to sin. So if you're listening to music and you go, ooh, I shouldn't listen to this because this might take me to a bad place or bad memories, but you listen anyway, it's not that listening to Benny King is sinful, but the fact that you went against it and you knew that this would not be good, that is what makes it sin. So all that to say, sometimes the actual actions we do are not necessarily sin, but our heart and our intent in that action is what makes it sin. So whatever it is, whether it's listening to music or or eating meat or whatever, it's what you think is wrong, and you can't go against that. So in Paul's day and age, these pagans offered food to idols, maybe similar to how we give God thanks for our food. And Paul says that even though we use these words idols and gods to describe things we worship as actual entities with power they actually don't exist they don't, they're not real so therefore the person who has a strong conscience they could just look at it and go man as long as it's cooked medium rare i'm good to go i'm fine like it doesn't bother me at all they can just say well i i can eat that to the glory of god I don't care if it's been offered to an idol. The idol doesn't even exist. But another person might say, yeah, but it was offered to the God of the sun. I don't know if we should do it. That person should not eat it. The other person has the ability, the freedom to eat it. Believers with a strong conscience can say, we don't have to live that way. We don't have to have all those restrictions because there's only one God. I'm going to give God thanks for this tasty meal. We can freely eat this. But because some people who are Christians... Paul says this, they don't possess that knowledge. They're not there yet. They're a little immature in their faith, maybe because of their past. So they don't possess that knowledge because of their former association with idols, they eat food as if really offered to an idol. And so their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So for them, they believe that it's sinful to eat that. And if they willfully do it, even though their assessment is actually wrong, like Bill and Ann, they had some things wrong but they should not go against their conscience. What they should do is obey their conscience and then also simultaneously pursue, God, would you shape my conscience to be correct? In the meantime, I'm gonna obey my conscience, but I wanna keep growing, does that make sense? Right? I'm gonna do it as I know how to do it, but I wanna do it better. Right? It's like when your kids are little and they don't speak English quite right, their grammar's all wrong, you don't say, hey, don't talk to me until you got your grammar right. right. You don't do that. But as they're kind of formulating words And figuring out grammar You help them through it So they can speak better as they get older You don't want them to stay Speaking with poor grammar When they're 17, 18, or 35, or 45 Right? You want them to grow in their grammar But in the meantime You don't condemn them That's what I'm saying It's not not a negative thing to say weak It's just talking about development Right? So when your kids are little And they're kind of speaking with bad grammar That's okay That's totally okay And they should speak how they know how to speak, but you also want to guide them into speaking better. That's what we're talking about here. Some believers don't possess the same knowledge, they don't have the same maturity, they haven't walked with the Lord enough, maybe they're still stuck in some past sin or condemnation from their past, so these things are kind of untouchable for them, right? And some of those things are going to be like that for their whole lives, and that's okay as well. That's okay as well. Some people will always be bothered by certain things, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just the reality of living in a fallen world, right? We're not gonna become perfectly free in all ways in this life. That day will come, but it's not gonna be here. We wanna have as much freedom as we can in this life, freed from the past and all these memories and stuff, but the reality is is some of the things that we've gone through in our past are, they're they're hard to get through. So things are gonna trigger you all through your life, and you need to depend on the Lord for that. Right? You need to go to the Lord. That's where you, your strength comes from the Lord, not from your own self. So this brings us to the second principle back in your notes here. Number two, your conscience is not the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's the weird dynamic here. You need to obey your conscience, but because you know your conscience might be wrong, you can't make your conscience the Lord. And that's weird, because I just told you to obey your conscience, but I'm also telling you that your conscience isn't the Lord, Making your conscience the Lord would be idolatry, wouldn't it? Isn't that what Peter did? Not so, Lord, I have never. He, he, was, he was more willing to obey his conscience than he was willing to obey the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? He's going, Oh, I I would never, I would never go do that, Lord, because I have never done that. And so therefore, so he's making his conscience the Lord rather than actually obeying the Lord. And Paul says there's only one Lord, and it's Jesus. So, so though we have to obey our conscience, we also have to know that our conscience is not the Lord. We are not to follow our own self-made God, whatever we think is moral and right and acceptable. Because again, if that's the case, right, like you should assume that if, if you're following the Lord biblically with a good conscience... And, and you're going no. This is I'm. Then you have to assume then that everyone else in this room is doing everything wrong, right? I mean, so so you can't so you can't say no. My conscience is the Lord. My conscience is the Word of God. That's that's not how we should be thinking. We have to understand that in our limited nature as humans, we don't have this thing down perfect. In the meantime, we're gonna follow our conscience. We're not going to break our conscience, but we're also going to walk humbly and graciously knowing that we've got some things wrong, right? And, and we're going to look at each other and go, hey, they might have it right. They might have it wrong. I'm not going to judge them because they might have it right. And I'm, you know, like Bill and Ann, right? So we have to walk humbly in this. So if God shows you that your conscience is wrong, it's upon you to seek an adjustment, which we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks on how to do that. If your conscience, your opinion, your values, if they're so sacred to you, if they're so sacred to you that even God's word is off limits or being open to the wisdom of other people in your life is off limits, that's a problem. If you're so hard set, that's a problem. So again, we think of Peter in Acts 10. There's things that you call unclean that are not unclean. There's things that are actually okay for you to partake in and enjoy in life as a gift. And you don't have to be bothered with a guilty conscience. Okay, now, maybe not right now, but you have to know that there are some things that maybe you don't have to actually call unclean. But the problem that we have is that conscience doesn't nuance well. Con- your conscience does not like nuance, right? Your conscience must to be black and white. No, but the way I do it is right. The way that you do it is wrong. Nope, there's no, I mean, your conscience does not like nuance. We just, we know what we believe and it's right and we know that these people are doing it totally wrong. That's how we are. And then this is when we get judgmental, condemning towards others, very opinionated. Your conscience wants to go black and white, all or nothing. This is why we tend to make snap judgments rather than just sitting and waiting on the Lord and praying and researching and talking through things with other people. We just make snap judgments because we already know black and white, this is right, this is wrong. We don't give time to allow the the nuances to kind of work themselves out and let our our consciousness align with biblical wisdom. We just react. This is why we tend to, like Peter did, be so black and white, using words like never and always, right? I have never done that, Lord. So what did he tell the Lord? So therefore, Lord, I'm not gonna do it now. I mean, he didn't just say no to the Lord. He said, no, I will never. That's what he was saying, right? So conscience will do that to you. Start getting you use words like never and always. And if you use those kinds of words with things that are conscience issues, you gotta be aware of that. Because all of a sudden, you're making your, you're becoming a judge of the law rather than an obeyer of the law you're now the judge and jury of what's right and wrong. And you should especially worry about that when you see other Jesus-loving Christians who are doing the opposite of you. That's one of your keys there, is if you see other Christians, and I mean like Jesus-loving Christians that you can love and respect, if they disagree with you, you at least have to be gracious towards them and not say never or always. That's when you go, okay, look. And so, so for me, there are so many People in this world, there are pastors and theologians that have differing views theologically than I do. And I just look at that and I go, man, I respect them. I'm not gonna sit there and dig my heels in the ground on something that these guys who are smarter than me, I'm gonna sit here and go, oh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. But I'm gonna go, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong. Now, I'm convinced that I'm right. That's good. But I have to understand that I'm not gonna die on those hills. I'm not gonna die on those hills. I'm going to have charity among people, good, Jesus-loving people who love the word of God. When we disagree on whether it's conscience issues like, like eating meat or secular music or whatever, I'm just going to be like, okay, I might be wrong on this. Well, chances are, me and those theologians, those pastors, we're like Bill and Ann where we agree on C, D, E, and F. So I'm like, all right, let's go, let's do this. But if we have some things out here, I'm not going to die on those hills. Now, I'm going to live according to my conscience, absolutely, but I'm not gonna die on those hills for the sake of others, as far as like looking at others and saying, oh, they've got it wrong, they've definitely got it wrong. So this is important for us to figure out, or at least try to figure out and wrestle with for two primary reasons. Number one, we want to know how to live among others who disagree, because they're in your own home, they're at your work, they're in your community group, they're sitting in front of you and behind you, and you wanna know how to live alongside them, peaceably, graciously, lovingly. We want to know how to enjoy, but also how to set aside our rights, our freedoms in Christ. I wanna enjoy my freedom in Christ. Christ purchased it for me. I intend to enjoy my freedom in Christ. But I also have to know when I should set aside my freedom in Christ for the sake of loving others. Does that make sense? All right, that's going back to that previous verse. The knowledge of my freedom, that can puff up, but I want my love for others who maybe have a different conscience than me, I want my love for them to build them up. So I'm gonna set aside my freedoms in Christ for the sake of others. Now, I wanna enjoy my freedoms in Christ to the nth degree, because Christ died for them. But I also want to be able to know when I can give those things up, even if temporarily, maybe long-term, depending on the relationship and the thing, whatever, but I need to be Flexible. And I don't want to get in the way of what the Lord wants to do in someone else's life because I'm going, well, I've got this freedom in Christ. I don't, I don't want that attitude. Christ didn't have that attitude. Paul didn't have that attitude. So we have to know, we want to know how to live among others. We want to do this for the sake of others, for the sake of church unity, but also church, we want to do this for the sake of evangelism. Right? Paul was unwilling to go to Gentiles because I have never. That would have radically affected the salvation of people who needed to know Jesus. So we have to get this right. We have to pursue this for the sake of church unity, but also for the sake of your neighbors. Your neighbors. Now we're gonna deal with more in week four. But a few important things to note, looking at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, Paul says this, this is a key for us, in church and in your neighborhood and at your work. To the weak, I became as weak. Hang out with people who have a different conscience than you, Lower yourself to them. And I, don't mean, I don't mean lower in a derogatory sense. I just mean, you know, serve them. To the weak, I became as the weak so that I could win the weak. I want to love them. I want them to see the love of Jesus, not the arrogance of, of free Joby. i become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And I do this all for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of my freedom in Christ, but for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in the gospel's blessings. That's why I'm willing to set aside my rights and my freedoms for the sake of others who don't see it the way I do. And I don't do that perfectly, church. None of us do. But I want to get better at that. I want to get better at setting aside my freedoms for the sake of others. Willfully setting aside my preferences for the sake of others. That's what I want in my life. Because matters of conscience, they transcend just just opinion about what's right and wrong morally. It's more than that. The conflict in 1 Corinthians was largely due to the fact that Paul came into the city, Corinth, this, this Gentile city, and he sought to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one church, though they come from wildly different backgrounds, different cultures, different viewpoints, different opinions. It would have been much easier for Paul to say, you know what, I'm gonna gonna start a church for for Jewish converts in this part of town, and over here, I'm gonna start a church for Gentile Christians over here. That's way easier. right? Wouldn't that be a lot easier if all of our churches just look like you? You get to go to a church that looks just like you, and then this church looks like someone else, and you don't have to even deal with those people. right? Political opinions or whatever it Like, is, let's just have all the Republican Christians go here and all the Democrats. That would be so much easier, wouldn't it? But that goes completely against the point of the gospel. That divides the body of Christ, rather than making one new man, as it says in Ephesians. We are to be one. We should be able to set aside our opinions on these different things for the sake of unity in Jesus Christ. That is what glorifies the Lord. When when an outsider, a non-believer, looks at a church and says, how does this crazy mishmash of people, this like soup of people, all these different ingredients, how do, how do they get along so well? Well, it's not our political affiliation. It's not our opinions on, on what kind of movies we can watch. That's not what unites us. What unites us is that we love Jesus Christ who saved us from our sins. That's what should unite our church. That's what amazes a church or people out there who they don't see that unity out there. And sadly, they don't really see that unity in the church, do they? Because we're not doing this. We're making all these other things into our idols. And those idols don't save. Those idols don't unite the way that the blood of Jesus does. And so we wanna grow in this. And this does not mean at all that we're going to become this homogenous, we're all going to have the same views of everything. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the exact opposite, actually. That we'll have people in here that have radically different views on peripheral things, but we come together in unity, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, graciously loving each other. I do not expect ever that this church will be perfectly unified in every single thing. I would never expect that. Never. That's, that's not even possible. And that's not the point. The point is to be unified by the right things. That's what Paul came to do in Corinth and bring Jews and Gentiles together. Some people would say, "Hey, let's worship Jesus together, going, "How do we do that? How do we do that together?" They figured it out. They had, I mean, you've read First and Second Corinthians. It was a messy church. But that's church. Church is messy because we're different. And that's okay. That's what actually sanctifies us. Sandpaper is what smooths things out. <laughs> right? You're going to be sandpaper to someone else in this church. Someone else can going to be sandpaper to you. But that's for God's glory in your life. And this is what Christ did. He set aside his own preferences and he served people. He set aside his preferences. And the second thing, the last point here. The other reason why this is important, why we need to do our best to figure this out is not just because we want to do it for the sake of others, but number two, even more importantly, we want to be aligned with Christ. So yes, it's for the sake of church unity. Yes, it's for the sake of evangelism. But more important than that, even, you should want your conscience to be shaped and reshaped because you should want to be as perfectly aligned with Christ as humanly possible. That's what you should want. So it's not just for the sake of unity, not just for the sake of evangelism, but it's so that you are in line with Christ. That's what you should want more than anything. More than anything. You should want to have a clear conscience in everything that you do. Everything you do. That's what you should want, is to have a clear conscience. It's still knowing that I might be wrong, but you should have a clear conscience. You should want that. We should want to do and live out God's will in our life. Some of you, some of you live with a very guilty conscience, maybe filled with shame or condemnation, maybe it's things in the past, maybe things in the present. God wants you to be freed from that. He wants you to be freed from that. Others of you, so that's the oversensitive conscience maybe. Others of you have a very callous conscience. You're doing things that you're like, oh, no, it's fine. You, you just assume it's fine, but it's not fine. It's not fine. And I hope that over the next few weeks, both the oversensitive and undersensitive conscience, maybe find some, some clarity. Ooh boy, I, I've, been, I've been beating myself up over this thing that I should be beating myself up on. Or I've been, I've been doing things I just assume are okay, and maybe I realize they're not. I don't want to have a seared conscience. I don't want to have a uh, uh, oversensitive or undersensitive conscience. I want to have a right conscience. I want to have a right conscience. Okay, so we're going to be looking at these next few weeks. The answer, the solution to both of those people is the gospel. It's the gospel. That God, because of His love, sent His Son to die for you. All the laws and commands and morals that He has set have set you free. He, they've been fulfilled and lived out in in and through Christ. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. So for those of you who are weighted down with a heavy, weak conscience, maybe just underdeveloped, with rules that the Bible doesn't even have, believe that Christ has done it all for you. He's done it all for you. Believe that he is the one true God, and there is no other God, and he's given life to you, he's set you free. For those of you who are calloused and you're just assuming too much, oh no, this is fine, this is fine. I want you to think about the blood that was spilled for your sin. Don't trample on that blood. Don't trample on the blood of Christ by just assuming how you think, what you do, how you speak, whatever it is. Oh, it's fine because I have freedom in Christ. Don't trample on the blood of Jesus. Repent of that, run the other way. He's not, he didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you and love you. So I'm not, I'm not trying to heap condemnation on you. I'm telling you to run to the, to the Jesus who loves you and repent Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I've, just, I've been calloused because he died for you. Even though you don't deserve it, he died for you. I want to just close with this one quick, uh, very short quote that I'm going to probably read at the end of all four Sermons. It's just a very short sentence by Martin Luther because this is what should capture us all. Martin Luther said, My conscience is held captive by the word of God. So, as we go these next four weeks, right, we're going to talk about next, we're going to look at what shapes our conscience, your, your upbringing, culture, all this kind of stuff. Okay. At the end of the day, church, God's word needs to be what shapes your conscience and holds your conscience captive. That's our goal. That's our goal these next four weeks. Okay, so I want to pray now, and I'm going to pray um, through Psalm 71 as Greg read this morning, and thank the Lord that we can take our refuge in Him. That uh, I know one, one temptation is going to be you're going to be going home and you're going to be like just sort of like wait wait I'm doing this wrong wait you're, you're going to be kind of on edge going wait is that right is that wrong okay just just chill a bit. <laughs> Be patient and just go, Lord, just, just help me. Don't try to figure it all out in one day, okay? Uh, now, in the meantime, I want to say this too. In the meantime, if you have questions about things, feel free to email them to me. I might not reply to you right away or give you an answer, but because it might come up in the next three weeks, or maybe it's something I'll just hold on to for the end uh, when I do something on video or whatever, but write them down or email them to me while they're fresh, um, Maybe not like Sunday afternoon fresh, but maybe like Monday or Tuesday fresh. Uh, but, you know, take note of these things because you want to wrestle with these, and I don't want to ignore those things, but we've we got to be patient with each other as we go through four weeks. Uh, but I want to be able to walk through this stuff uh, with all of us. So let's pray. Lord, it is in you that we uh, take our refuge and when we take our refuge in you, Lord, you promise that you will not put us to shame. And so, for those of us who have an underdeveloped or overdeveloped conscience, we know that we can come to you not feeling any shame. If we've been calloused, trampling on your blood, that is a shameful thing, but we can come to you without shame. If we've been, have an oversensitive conscience, and we've been, judging others and condemning others and imposing our conscience on others that's a shameful thing but we can come to you knowing that you are not going to put us to shame so lord deliver us and rescue us incline your ear to us be our rock of refuge to which we continually come to every single day every moment you're our rock you're our fortress rescue us lord Rescue us from our own sin, from our own judgmentalism, our own Pharisaism, our own licentiousness. Rescue us, Lord. You are our hope. We put our trust in you. We lean on you. Our praise is continuously of you and towards you and for you. Lord, fill our mouths today and tomorrow. Every day as we arise each day, fill our mouths with praise. Fill our mouths with your glory all the day long. Thank you for your graciousness, your goodness, your patience, your love. Help us to wrestle with these things. There's gonna be a lot that's gonna be rattling around in our minds and in our hearts, but we know that you're gonna be patiently working in us and completing the good work that you began in us. So we thank you, Lord, for that. I want to ask that you bless the community groups that are meeting tonight and on Thursday, that uh, discussion will be good and fruitful and gracious, interesting, fascinating, challenging. Just that be, they would be fun. Fun talking about the word of God. Fun talking about life and how to align ourselves with you. So we thank you, Lord. We love you so much. We thank you for your word that speaks to us about these very complicated and complex issues. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray, amen.